Welcome to our Didache Divine Service, Session 25, and today is the third of three on the Sacrament of Holy Baptism. We will be looking at Mark 10, the traditional Jesus receiving the little children and putting his hands on them and blessing them. And then we're going to take a look at the baptismal liturgy. So if you have your Lutheran catechesis book, that will be most helpful uh, to follow along with that part of the discussion. This last session begins to point us forward to the next part of the catechism, confession and the office of the keys, since the daily significance of our baptism is the daily dying to sin and rising to new life uh, through Christ's forgiveness. So every day is to be a return to our baptism. We are fewer in number today. Uh, John Bruss waiting surgery on Wednesday. Uh, Jan and Chuck, or Tuesday, I mean. Jan and Chuck are um, at a funeral. Uh, the Landrys uh, had some workmen coming to their house today. And Samantha, my daughter-in-law, is home with sniffling twin girls. So we're a little bit fewer in number today. Oh, and uh, Gail is still in Florida, which I think is a very sinful thing to do. But <laughs> All right, so, and we will sing our hymn again at the end uh, as we transition from our catechesis into the sacrament of the altar. Let us begin with prayer. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. O God, for our redemption, you gave your only begotten Son to the death of the cross, and by his glorious resurrection delivered us from the power of the enemy. Grant that all our sin may be drowned through daily repentance, and that day by day we may arise to live before you, in righteousness and purity forever. Through Jesus Christ our Lord, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. That was one of the collects for Easter Day, and it actually uses language that we find in this last section of the Catechism on Baptism. It's daily significance through contrition, and repentance and being raised up anew with Christ. So, more about that shortly. Mark chapter 10 is the reading for today, verses 13 through 16. Mark chapter 10, verses 13 through 16. Now, the context of this is actually set up by the earlier verses in the chapter. Jesus speaks to the Pharisees about divorce and marriage in verses 2 through 12, and then the section on him blessing the children immediately follows. So while our reading is verses 13 through 16, if you go up to, verses, to verse 1, Jesus arose and came to the region of Judea by the other side of the Jordan, and the people gathered to him again. And as he was accustomed, he taught them again. So it's out of those people then that verse 13 says, Then they 
brought young children to him. So those people who gathered about him to hear his catechesis, his teaching, brought young children to him that he might touch them. But the disciples rebuked those who brought them. But when Jesus saw it, he was greatly displeased and said to them, Let the little children come to me, and do not forbid them, for of such is the kingdom of God. Assuredly, I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God as a little child will by no means enter it. And he took them up in his arms, put his hands on them, and blessed them. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So my first bullet on your outline, I've already answered for you. Who were those who brought the young children to Jesus that he might touch them? It's those who gathered about him to hear his teaching. Which means that those who gathered about him to hear his teaching are predominantly believers who themselves had been baptized. Now, there are always in the congregation those who have not been baptized, who are curiosity seekers. But generally speaking, those who are pressing about Jesus to hear him have themselves somehow or other been touched by his forgiving word. So these are the ones who are then bringing their children to Jesus that he might touch them. Now, the second bullet I want you to think about. Why did the parents... Yeah, hello. You can't... This is not phone a friend on these answers, by the way. Why did the parents of these people think that Jesus' touch was significant? What did they desire their children to receive by this touch? You get the idea? Why did they think his... They brought... Mark is careful to record. They brought their young children to Jesus. And the word here for children is of all ages, from tiniest infants on up. They brought their young children to Jesus that he might touch them. Why? Why did the parents think that Jesus' touch was significant? Polly? They, they believed that he was God. His touch would bless them. It wouldn't bring them into the kingdom of God? Oh, it's not so... Not even Jesus can bring people into the kingdom. Going by the rules. You see, this is what I want you to see. Uh, some people look at this pericope, that's the fancy word for slice of scripture, you know, and say, well, there's not, it has nothing to do with baptism. Now think about this. Since Jesus is the Son of God in human flesh who came to die for the sins of the world, those who are his followers and disciples believe he is the source of salvation. Are they bringing their children to Jesus to be touched by him because they believe his touch will absolutely accomplish nothing? No. It is impossible. If you're going to be touched by Jesus, there's only one of two results. 
What are they? What's that? That you would receive what he's come to give. You can't have the blessing of Jesus and be damned. Let me repeat that. You cannot have the blessing of Jesus and be damned. So the touch of Jesus is going to be, bring one of two things, either salvation or condemnation. There's no middle ground because of who he is and what he came to do. So in this question, what did they desire their children to receive? Now, what does it say later on in the words of Jesus? What does he say? Belongs to these children. What he intends to give these children. The kingdom of God, Rosie, that's correct. So his touch is delivering to them the kingdom of God. Now, later on in the bullets, it's going to say, how does this touch of Jesus get communicated to us today and to our children today in the waters of baptism? You cannot magnify the touch of Jesus higher, too high. In other words, you cannot make too much out of it. Think of all of the things that he did with his touch in the Gospels. He touched the eyes of the blind man, and the blind man could see. He put his fingers into the ear of the deaf man and touched the deaf man's tongue with his spittle. And the deaf could hear and the mute could speak. He touched the leprous man, and the leprosy was cleansed. The woman with the flow of blood was touched by the hem of his garment, and the blood stopped, and she was made clean. All, just be, and so all of the touches of Jesus communicate something from him. Pardon me? Salvation. Salvation, the kingdom of God. It works forgiveness of sins. It rescues from death and the devil. It gives eternal salvation. So going back to Polly's comment about it not being baptism, but think about this. What have we been saying about baptism? Baptism saves because baptism gives you Christ. Christ. Okay? To say baptism saves is to say Jesus saves. So you could say, why did they want their children touched by Jesus? They wanted their children saved. They wanted their children to receive the kingdom of God that Jesus came to bring. You, we cannot emphasize that enough, what the touch of Jesus does. And it would be absolutely wrong for us to say, here we are, 2,000 years after Jesus, and he doesn't touch us anymore. That would be absurd, or very sad, or both. <laughs> okay? He touches us now in his sacraments. That's why the physicality of the sacraments is so significant. And I'm not giving to you anything that I made up. This is the ancient churches and the apostolic witness concerning baptism. Next question. What motivated the disciples to rebuke the parents who brought their children 
to Jesus. Remember, it says there, the disciples rebuked those who brought them. Stay away. Take your kids out of here. Why did they do that? He's too busy to bother with little children. Keep going. Why did they do this? They had done it before. They're trying to keep people from Jesus all the time. Shame on them. Why? What what, What kind of belief system is going on inside of them? All right, do I have to help you? What do little children have to offer Jesus? Nothing. What good works have they accomplished? What life achievements have they accomplished? What social status have they risen up to by their education, their talents, their abilities? Nothing. What has a little baby accomplished other than filling his diaper? Okay? So they have no, they've got not gotten an education yet, they've not achieved a social status yet, they've not done all kinds of religious works yet, they're certainly not as devout and pious as we disciples who have left all and followed Jesus. Look at what we have done. Garbage. According to Jesus later on, that does not count. So it is a works righteous faith that is motivating their rebuke. Stay away from him. Your children are not worthy of him. Cherie? Um, I was just thinking about the idea that maybe they didn't want to share him. Maybe they didn't want to share him. That they didn't think he had enough love to go around. Well, we have a right to it and they don't because of who we are and what they are not. Once they reach the age of accountability, or once they have accomplished something in their lives. Now, what is Jesus' response to their rebuke? It says he's greatly displeased. Maybe a colloquial expression today would be ticked off at the disciples. And he said, let the little children come to me. Do not forbid them, for of such is the kingdom of God. So I have in the next bullet, why was Jesus greatly displeased? And I want you to look at Mark 9. It's the previous chapter, verse 36 and 37. In a section where he was asked, who is the greatest in the kingdom? Mother Teresa, Pope John Paul II. No, he took a little child and set him in the midst of them. And when he had taken him in his arms, he said to them, whoever receives one of these little children in my name receives me. 
And whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. So to reject the little child is to reject Jesus. So who is the greatest? The one who is the object of his love, this little child who has nothing to give but is the object of Jesus' salvation. So I have here in the bullet, you know, why was Jesus greatly displeased? To receive a child in the name of Jesus is to receive Jesus. Amazing. Because to reject a child means that you're rejecting Jesus and the salvation that comes not by grace to the unworthy and helpless, but you're claiming salvation comes by works to the worthy and the accomplished. That's a rejection of Jesus. To reject a child receiving Jesus is to reject Jesus. To receive a child in the name of Jesus is to receive Jesus. That's what he says in, in, in Mark chapter 9, just the scenes immediately prior to this, when they're asking him about greatness and he puts this little poopsie in the midst. This is greatness. Because greatness is measured by Christ's love and salvation given to that child. Okay? So in this pericope, who's held up as an icon or example of a Christian? An erudite scholar, adult, who has accomplished much, or a helpless child who has accomplished nothing? It's the latter. It, it is the child that is held up. This is one of the reasons why this pericope is used not simply for children being baptized, but especially for adults. Because what must we become? Little children. Okay? So that brings us to the next question. Why does Jesus not want children to be forbidden to come to him? The answer is found there in verse 14. Of such is the kingdom of God. That's why. That's not my promise. That's his. The kingdom of God belongs to them because I have won it for them. And it is my desire to give it to them. Assuredly, I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God as a little child receives the kingdom of God will by no means enter it, verse 15. So again, what does the kingdom of God mean? Well, yeah, the gift of Christ for the forgiveness of sins, rescue from death and the devil, and eternal salvation. See, the second circular bullets are the answers to some of these questions. So you don't forget these answers. You cannot receive the kingdom of God and not be receiving Christ and his salvation. So he says, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God as a little child will by no means enter it. Now, the next question, how does a little child receive the kingdom of God, 
is not about what some think. Children have a childlike faith. As if they, faith is somehow or other their work. No, to receive the kingdom of God as a little child is to receive the kingdom of God as a pure gift. So it emphasizes not faith as their action, it isn't, but rather the grace of God as his gift. Okay? So the point of comparison with little children receiving is how did a little child that was born receive the gift of life as a gift? You follow? Did a child conceive himself? Did a child conceive? Did a child give birth to himself? No. So this is the point of comparison. It's as pure gift. So just as life itself was conceived and born as a gift, so the new life is conceived and born as a gift. Gil? I know, I'm trying to, if, if the little child has a trust, where did it come from? Well, naturally, it's in parents to children, so we're, I'm thinking child to Christ. If, but if this, there's simple trust of the heart in Jesus, where did that come from? It came from God alone. And it's folk, what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to upset you. Because you and I have both for decades heard all this nonsense about childlike faith. And what it does is it makes faith my work, my activity. It takes the eyes off of the object of salvation. If only I had childlike faith. Well, childlike faith, if we want to, is what God works. God the Holy Spirit works through the Word. To receive the kingdom of God as a little child is to receive the kingdom of God as a pure gift. Do you see the difference here? Otherwise, we're emphasizing like there's something inherent in the child. No. We're conceived and brought forth in iniquity, my mother conceived me. So it's not as if children have a greater capacity to believe than adults have a capacity to believe. None of us have a capacity to believe. Faith is a work of God, not our work. So the emphasis has to be on receiving faith, receiving salvation as a pure gift. What can a little baby do to cause himself to believe in Jesus? Nothing. That's the point here. Whoever does not receive the kingdom of God, as a little child receives the kingdom of God, pure gift cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. So just as life is received as a pure gift, so eternal life is received as a pure gift. Susan? Essentially, is I am not 
you need to do it all for me. You need to make my peanut butter sandwich. You need to change my diaper. You need to save me. Is yes, but the, the way the phrase childlike faith is used is to describe an inherent virtue in children. That's what I'm speaking against. An inherent virtue. Faith is not an inherent virtue that children have. Okay, that's the point here. Faith, to the extent that there's faith anywhere, that is a miracle of the Holy Spirit through the word of the gospel. Do you follow what I'm saying? Does this make sense, Gil? See, I'm pausing on this because you and I have had this drummed into us, but it's so often from American evangelical circles where faith is seen as a human work, an act of trust on my part. So you got to cultivate, Bill, this childlike act of trust on your part. Do you you follow? Wally? No. Uh, yeah, well, come to me because I am the source of salvation. Okay. Because it can only be received by faith alone. See, look at yeah, look at look at this. When a child is born. Um, Do you remember when you were born? You don't, do you? I I don't. Well, then obviously you don't exist. Because if you don't remember the time you made a decision to be born, then you obviously don't exist. So when faith is seen as a decision, so I'm talking about the first birth, So you apply that to the new birth. See, faith is a, a, this is false doctrine. Faith is a decision of my will. Okay, no, no. Faith is the living trust of the heart that is solely, solely, 100% a miracle of God, the Holy Spirit. Okay, so that's what Jesus is talking about. Whoever does not receive. It's receive faith and forgiveness, salvation, the kingdom of God, as a little child receives it. How does a little child receive it? Not by any decision of their will, not by any work or merit of their own, but as a pure 
gift. And they received because they believed because... No, the reception is faith. The reception is faith. Faith is the passive trust of the heart. They are receiving when Jesus is touching them. They are receiving when Jesus is touching them. And they're receiving as a pure gift, faith and salvation. Leave it alone there. Leave it alone there. Let it sit there. Okay? You have several grandchildren, Wally. All of them received life as a gift. Correct? That's the point here. All receive the new life in Christ as a gift. That's the point here. Without any merit or contribution on the part of the receiver. That's the point here. Okay? And salvation, you know, we say this all the time. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that faith is not even of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, which anyone, uh, so that no one should boast. And that's precisely why the disciples were trying to, they've done nothing. Precisely the point, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God as a little child receives it, will by no means enter it. So, I have under this question, you know, what does Jesus mean by saying whoever does not receive the kingdom of God as a little child will by no means enter it. Salvation in Christ is a pure gift of God's grace to be received by faith alone as a little child receives life as a gift without any contribution on the child's part. So the new life in Christ is a gift without any contribution on our part. That's why children, because it's the best example of someone who really can't do anything or really hasn't done anything. What is your youngest grandchild's name? Simeon. What did Simeon do? How many days old was he when he was baptized? He, he, has, he had never once given his mother a thank you card for the labor she went through. He hasn't done that yet, has he? Yet the only thing that he has given to her are tears and poopy diapers, pretty much. And everything has to be done for him. There's an example of what it is to be a Christian. Okay? And of course, that didn't... So, so the emphasis is upon whose work? Our work or Christ's work? Whose gifts? Our gifts or Christ's gifts? Okay. So what did Jesus give to them when he took them up in his arms and put his hands on them and blessed them? The kingdom of God, which we've already discussed, is the gift of faith and salvation in Christ and how does he take up children in his arms and bless them today? By baptism. Remember what John the Baptist himself said. He says, I baptize you with water, but there is one who is coming 
who is mightier than I, whose sandal strap I am not worthy to loose, he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. That's not two different baptisms. What it means is that Jesus is actually the one doing the doing. To uh, quote from a sermon recently about who's running the verbs, Jesus is the one doing the doing. I'm not giving you Jesus' body and blood in the Lord's Supper today. Jesus is. I didn't baptize Simeon. Jesus did, which is one of the reasons why, for example, um, Pastor Gelbach's grandchildren were baptized by me, not by him, because I'm the pastor here charged with doing that. He's an assistant lest you say, you were baptized by your grandpa. Well, isn't that sentimental? The greater thing is, you were baptized by Jesus. That's the greater thing. Okay? So then when John says, I baptize with water, that he baptizes. So... Absolutely, John's baptism was efficacious. Why didn't he? Well, we don't know. Why didn't he what? Why he doesn't say, say it more clearly. I baptize with water and the words of the Lord put in my mouth. Well, lest we, lest we think that we have to go back 2,000 years and have John baptize us. Oh. Okay, he's, he is merely the instrument. I got it. Just like I am merely the instrument. I'll be here one day and I'll be gone in a decade or two or whatever, but the baptism avails. Why? Because it's Christ baptizing. It's Christ giving out his body and blood. It's not me. Okay? And so St. Paul says there's one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of us all. So in that one baptism phrase, all of the disciples were baptized by John or his colleagues at the Jordan River. None of them were re-baptized. There is no such thing. But their baptism was filled up with greater and greater meaning and significance as they followed Jesus and so forth. Well, you know, the question is, for the sake of the recording, what about those children? Were they baptized already, or were they baptized later or something? Again, let us understand that the sacraments are how Jesus continues his ongoing ministry in the church. But the source of that faith, forgiveness, life, and salvation is Jesus. So whatever Jesus does is efficacious, okay? So let us never pit baptism against Jesus. I mean, there's great baptismal overtones to Jesus putting spit on his fingers and on the tongue and in the ears of the deaf mute. Since Jesus is the content of baptism... And since Jesus is the content of blessing of the children here, there is no, there's no conflict. The point is, how do we receive Jesus? 
Do you follow? How do we receive Jesus? So let us not put baptism in a box that's separated from Jesus. His, the benefits of his baptism were given by his touch throughout the New Testament. Just as we return to the benefits of our baptism through his touch in absolution. It's one of the reasons why the laying on of hands is used to signify that. Or in the Lord's Supper, you know, he continues to touch us today. I don't know if that's confusing or helpful, Polly. I also just, we're, we're better off just letting Jesus do what he does. Because I think he knows what he's doing. So there's often the objection, you know, when we say baptism is necessary for salvation, what we're saying is Jesus is necessary for salvation. And he binds us to baptism. And then people immediately, what about the thief on the cross? He wasn't baptized, to which I have two responses. First, how do you know? But second and more importantly, look, if Jesus says, today you will be with me in paradise, take it to the bank. He doesn't establish baptism to tie his hands. Sorry, Jesus, you can't save that thief on the cross because he was never baptized. Are you kidding me? You you follow? He doesn't establish baptism to tie his saving hands. He establishes baptism to make his gifts Plentiful all over the world. It's part of what Jesus is talking about when he says, greater works than these will you do, not in kind, but in quantity. Can you imagine if it could only be the local presence of Jesus in the world today, you know, then we'd have to put him on a jet and fly him to Africa, and then he'd have to do the baptizing there, send him to Australia, No, now through the office of the holy ministry, he who hears you hears me. That's what we had in chapter 9. He who receives me receives him who sent me. That's fantastic. So that means that Jesus is actually baptizing today all over the planet, taking little children and putting his hands on them or big children and turning them into little children and putting his hands on them. Okay? Is that helpful? Cherie. I, um, I like the part in the baptismal prayer where it says, through the baptism in the Jordan of your beloved son, our Lord Jesus Christ, you sanctified and instituted all waters to be a blessed flood and a lavish washing away of sin. So, yes, water in the word, but water is everywhere. Just like you were talking about the idea of it's through the ministers. It's through the people. Right. So this is, this, is, this is one of our problems that we are so, even as Lutherans who believe, as the church Catholic has believed in baptism and the Lord's Supper, we just don't see them as pervasive as we should. We tend to look at baptism in complete isolation from all of the healing miracles of Jesus. So those healing miracles of Jesus are the fantastic, great things Jeepers, wish we could be a part of those today. Wait, but we are. We are. The promise of baptism is resurrection to eternal life. 
and a recovery of sight to the blind, hearing to the deaf, speech to the mute, uh, strength to the crippled, cleansing of the leper, life from death. You can't get much better than that. So when Jesus is doing his ministry, you are seeing the benefits that baptism and the Lord's Supper then offer. So rather than see those sacraments as stapled on, irrelevant to the rest of Christian doctrine, they're absolutely central. Just like the gospel in a nutshell is actually Jesus' words in the supper, take, eat, this is my body which is given for your sinful maggot flesh, maggot sack flesh. This is my blood which is shed for you for the forgiveness of all your sins. And where there's forgiveness, there's life and salvation. Okay, that's pretty fantastic. So it is through the sacraments, baptism, absolution, the Holy Supper, that Jesus continues his ministry today of healing and new life and bringing the kingdom of God to us. So any time that he brought the kingdom of God to people in the New Testament, that was baptismal in character, whether it's the thief on the cross or this person or that person or these children here. Okay? Susan. Yeah, that's true. They're, they're, it says that Jesus' disciples were baptizing more than John's disciples. So the fact that they're coming to listen to Jesus preach and assuming his disciples are baptizing, these are the little ones that weren't baptized last year. So yeah, John, chap John chapter 4, it says that Jesus baptized more than John, but not... Jesus specifically, but Jesus' disciples, which is how Jesus was baptizing. Lest again, you say, well, I was baptized by Peter. Well, I was baptized by Andrew. Well, I was baptized by Jesus. The point is, he's the source of it all. But in, the, in John's gospel, you've got the, the man at the pool of Bethesda. He is healed without being put into the water. What does that teach? That the source of the healing in the water is Christ. That's what it teaches. It's not to disparage the water of baptism. Uh, the water is just plain water, but with the word of God, it is a baptism. That is a life-giving water, and he's the source of that. All right, let's, let's go ahead and turn to uh, your Lutheran catechesis, page 221, which is taking us back this, uh, the baptismal liturgy. I, I mean, unless you have a burning... Question, you want to revisit what we just talked about? If it shatters some of your preconceived thoughts or long-standing thoughts, that's not a bad thing. Okay. Uh, I, have, I just outlined on your sheet, you know, under the baptismal liturgy, the exhortation and exorcism or admonition of Satan, the sign of the cross, the colic, and if you look on page 221, it's the right-hand column that gives you the actual language of the liturgy and the left-hand column, which is a description. So this exhortation and exorcism, um, 
or perhaps better put, an admonishment or reprimand of Satan. It begins with, dearly beloved, Christ our Lord says in the last chapter of Matthew, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Close quote. In the last chapter of Mark, our Lord promises, whoever believes, again, the faith's object is Christ, and is baptized into Christ, will be saved. And the Apostle Peter has written, Baptism now saves you. So all of those quotations are direct quotations from Matthew 28, Mark 16, and 1 Peter 3. And then this address. The Word of God also teaches that we are all conceived and born sinful. That includes the tiniest infant, conceived and born sinful, and are under the power of the devil. So baptism snatches us from the devil's kingdom and puts the person into God's kingdom. So we're under the power of the devil until Christ claims us as his own. So children, infants, bring nothing to the table. They're in the kingdom of Satan also until they are claimed by God. Therefore, here's the exorcism or the admonishment or reprimand of Satan. Depart, you unclean spirit, and make room for the Holy Spirit in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. So as the commentary says, this exhortation declares the reality that baptism rescues the sinner from the devil and makes him a temple of the Holy Spirit. The exorcism or admonishment of the devil is spoken by invoking the very name into which the candidate will be baptized. So that sets up what is going to be given in the sacrament of holy baptism. Questions or comments? It almost sounds like you have a personal devil when you're born. Well, the unclean spirit that is being spoken of is Satan himself. There are lots of evil demons. So uh, don't necessarily think of uh, personal devils, although uh, C.S. Lewis in the Screwtape Letters uh, kind of cultivates that where the, you know, they got the apprentice demon, uh, and the master demon, and they're having this conversation about how to attack Susan and go to her this way and say this, and then the apprentice has his hand at it. But uh, the unclean spirit, the unclean spirit, with the article, you know, the devil and all of his minions. Now, the oldest, uh, the oldest uh, action in the liturgy of baptism is the sign of the cross. And uh, the pastor makes the sign of the cross upon the forehead and heart of the candidate while saying, receive the sign of the Holy Cross both upon your forehead and upon your heart to mark you as one redeemed by Christ the crucified. Um, some of you uh, would remember um, 
other language from the Lutheran hymnal, receive the sign of the Holy Cross both upon your forehead and upon your breast. Does anybody remember that? Okay. Uh, forehead and breast, forehead and, and heart. The heart is the seat of faith. It is the oldest action, liturgical action, in the baptismal liturgy, uh, other than the actual application of the water. But this action was often accompanied in the ancient church by chrism oil, which is scented oil, a perfume. And so the, the pastor would, or a deacon or deaconess, would put the thumb in the oil and mark the forehead and the heart. In the ancient church, uh, with lots of adult converts and entire families being baptized, uh, and when uh, baptistries were being built in the third century and fourth century, there were entire pools separated with a curtain and so those who were uh, being baptized, the women and girls went on one side, the men and boys went into the water on the other. And this is why I mentioned the deacon and the deaconess, because then they would be the ones, they went into the water naked, and they were the ones, the deacon or deaconess, to make the sign of the cross with the chrism, the perfumed oil. Oil always being a symbol for the Holy Spirit. So anointing with oil, anointing with the Spirit, so it declared the reality of baptism. And then the anointing of the sick after that would be done with the sign of the cross and that same oil and a strong remembrance then of one's baptism. There, if you can think about being baptized as an adult and being christened with the perfumed chrism oil, it brings back a powerful memory of your baptism and your identity. So that's a little bit of the history um, liturgically of, of that. Polly. Oh yeah, there, there were. The words would be spoken, but that gesture done with the perfumed oil. Okay. Um, yeah, oh, it's, smell is an extremely powerful memory trigger. Have you had any experience with that? When I had surgery when I was 19 years old in the day of sodium pentothal as a general anesthetic, when that went up the arm, it not only had a feeling, but when it hit my neck, it, evo it, it created this smell, the smell of sodium pentothal. And I knew then the next time I woke up, I'd be in pain from the surgery. So I was in a neuromuscular relaxation class in college. And some fragrance came through the window while we're all lying there that smelled just like sodium pentothal. I was no longer neuromuscular relaxing because that triggered a powerful memory. Okay? So that was the, the function of this to bring to your remembrance. We do the same thing today, then, with the sign of the cross. 
the sign of the cross was given to you when you were baptized. So when you come into the divine service and we have the invocation in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and make the sign of the cross, that is to be a remembrance of your baptism. I am a baptized child of God, buried with Christ by baptism into his death and raised with Christ. Or when the absolution is spoken. Or depart in peace at the Lord's Supper and the sign of the cross. Every usage of the sign of the cross is symbolic of the fact that you are a baptized Christian. Okay? Now, the next is this collect. And this uh, baptismal rite is uh, Luther's baptismal rite, which is in Lutheran service book as the uh, alternate form. A lot of these same elements are also in the pew edition of what you have. But this collect, based on Matthew 7, 7, where Jesus says, ask and you will receive, seek and you will find, and so forth. It prays to the Lord asking for the very things that baptism promises. And so, if you think about our discussion about prayer, prayer claims the promises of God. So, O Almighty and Eternal God, Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, we pray on behalf of your servant Simeon, who asks for the gift of your baptism and desires your eternal grace through spiritual rebirth. Receive him, Lord, according to your promise. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. Now give your blessing to him who asks and open the door to him who knocks so that he may obtain the eternal blessing of this heavenly bath and receive the promised kingdom that you give through Jesus Christ our Lord. Now one of the things that the collect does is it assumes infant faith, which is given voice by the pastor praying the prayer. You know, if you think about faith as spiritual life, and if you think of this faith and spiritual life as coming entirely from God, this is speaking about, you know, the baptism of children of Christians. It's a lovely thing for me to ponder, you know, when I see these uh, mothers like Elizabeth coming to divine service throughout all of her pregnancies and then pregnant here with Simeon at the Lord's table and then she is receiving Christ's body and blood while pregnant with Simeon. Um, St. Paul makes the comment about children being sanctified by their believing uh, uh, parents. Not in the sense that the faith of the parents saves the child, but because the parent believes, what is the parent doing? The parent is coming to divine service, coming to hear the word. You follow, you follow that? So um, this collect kind of reflects that. It's sort of like saying, if the child could speak, the child would say, Give me his salvation, Lord Jesus. 
So we give voice to uh, infant faith. But that's what Jesus is saying. You know, ask, you will receive. Seek, you will find. Who asks? Those who believe. Who seeks? Those who believe. Who knocks? Those who believe. We, nobody asks from a position of unbelief. Nobody seeks from a position of unbelief. Nobody knocks from a position of unbelief. You wouldn't ask or seek or knock if you didn't believe. So we believe, the parents believe, we assume infant faith. In any case, we ask according to the Lord's promise. Now the next prayer is called the flood prayer. Um, it is used by Luther in his right. There is some question uh, that did it, he write it or did it predate Luther? It's a little bit of a mystery, but it is a lovely prayer, and Cherie quoted it earlier. It is a lovely prayer on a number of levels. One of them is the way in which it draws upon the rich baptismal language of the New Testament. So you have Almighty and, and, and of the Old Testament, Almighty and eternal God, according to your strict judgment, you condemn the unbelieving world through the flood. So there's judgment through water. Yet according to your great mercy, you preserve believing Noah and his family, eight souls and all. There's salvation. So you get condemnation for the wicked unbelieving and salvation for believing Noah and his family. You drown hard-hearted Pharaoh and all his hosts in the Red Sea. There's the condemnation. Yet led your people Israel through the water on dry ground foreshadowing this washing of your holy baptism. Think, whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, known as family, or the believing Israelites, but condemnation for the unbelieving at the time of the flood or the unbelieving Egyptians. Through the baptism in the Jordan of your beloved Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, you sanctified and instituted all waters to be a blessed flood and a lavish washing away of sin. In the flood and the Red Sea crossing narratives, you have condemnation and salvation in contrast. What about in the baptism of Jesus? There's no contrast because they come together in Jesus' baptism to fulfill all righteousness. He is the one who becomes the sin bearer to die for sin, and then by that faithful sacrifice unto death, he is the source of life from the dead. So both condemnation and salvation come in Jesus. In the cross, he is condemned. In the resurrection, he proclaims the justification of the sinner before God. And that's the, the nexus in, in baptism. A lavish washing away of sin. I, I love that, uh, that word. We pray that you would behold... Simeon's middle name is Luke. Simeon Luke, according to your boundless mercy, and bless him with true faith by the Holy Spirit. True childlike faith by the Holy Spirit. That through this saving flood, all sin in him, which has been inherited from Adam, and which he himself has committed since, would be drowned and die. Grant that he be kept safe and secure in the holy ark of the Christian church. Now, the ark of the church, that brings to mind the Old Testament ark that Noah built and also the boat 
that Jesus and the disciples were in on the Sea of Galilee. These are baptismal images and the boat being an image of the church into which baptism places you. Being separated from the multitude of unbelievers and serving your name at all times with a fervent spirit and a joyful hope, so that with all believers in your promise, he would be, now here's justification language, declared worthy of eternal life. Remember the Titus 3, he saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit. And then at the end, so that having been justified, declared righteous, worthy, uh, he becomes an heir of eternal life. So there is the um, flood prayer, and then hear the Holy Gospel according to St. Mark, which we just went through in our catechesis. This is the traditional gospel for holy baptism and remains so, not only for the baptism of infants, but especially for the baptism of adults who hear Jesus' word, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God as a little child will by no means enter it. By these words, Jesus teaches us what he also taught Nicodemus in John 3, that baptism is a new birth. The kingdom of God must be received purely as a gift, even as life itself is given to every child as a gift. So then notice what happens liturgically. The pastor then, if the gospel is read, places his hands on the candidate. Whose hands do the pastor's hands signify? Jesus' hands. Our Father, who art in heaven. That's the baptismal reality. Hallowed be thy name. I baptize you in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Thy kingdom come. Whoever does not receive the kingdom of God as a little child will by no means enter it. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done. It is his good and gracious will, as he says, in that promise in Mark chapter 10. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our trespasses. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Depart you unclean spirit and make room for the Holy Spirit. For the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God, and the power and the glory are his forever and ever. So notice how the, the, the Lord's Prayer is much more highly baptismally charged then you realize when you see about the kingdom of God there, the hallowing of God's name, that's what's happening. God's name is hallowed when you receive a little child in the name of the triune God here at the font of baptism. Do you see those things? Okay. And then if the baptismal party has stood at the entrance of the nave to this point, they now move to the font. A hymn may be sung during the procession. We don't have that uh, practice here, but it could be done. Then the pastor says... Uh, and this is where the words uh, have significance. You know, the Lord preserve your coming in to the divine service to the congregation and your going out into the world from this time forth and even forevermore. So this movement in and out of the divine service by the baptismal faithful is what that is talking about. And the Lord preserved that coming in and going out so that you remain in the baptismal faith. 
And then the confession of faith. The pastor addresses the candidate and asks the following questions. And these three questions are parable to the threefold confession of the creed. So, Simeon Luke, do you renounce the devil? Yes, I renounce him. Do you renounce all his works? Yes, I renounce them. Do you renounce all his ways? Yes, I renounce them. That renunciation is part and parcel of what daily contrition and repentance is all about. To, re to renounce the devil and his wicked works and ways, including the corruption of your own flesh. And then to claim the promises of the triune God. Do you believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth? Yes, I believe. Do you believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, the second article of the Creed? Yes, I believe. Do you believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Christian Church? Yes, I believe. Simeon Luke, do you desire to be baptized? Yes, I do. The pastor pours water three times on the head of the candidate while saying, Simeon Luke, I baptize you in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. So the commentary there says the use of the name of the triune God in baptism is shorthand for all the promises of the gospel of Jesus upon which baptism is based. The name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit combined with the water applied to the baptismal candidate are what constitute a valid baptism according to Christ's institution in Matthew 28. God's name and water may never be omitted. And what is called then the blessing and dismissal is another one of the oldest parts of the liturgy. It's also called the confirmation because it confirms what the baptism has accomplished. That word confirmation is a word that had later usage when there began to be a separation uh, between baptism and reception of the Lord's Supper. So a confirmation was declared later on after a period of catechesis to say this person really is a faithful baptized Christian who should be admitted to the Lord's Supper. In the first three centuries of the church, infants and children were being baptized, yes, but many, many adults were being baptized, whole families. Um, as after Constantine and the legalization of Christianity and multiple generations of adults who had been baptized as infants were then having children, at the, the, the numbers of percentage-wise, you know, infant versus adult baptism changed. Because if you got all of the adults in the uh, Western world of the Holy Roman Empire are baptized, then when they have children, they're already been baptized as infants, then their children. So then the percentage of infant baptisms versus adults went up. It's not that more infants were being baptized or more children. It's such that all the adults already had been baptized. Do you follow that? But it says here, the pastor places his hands on the head of the newly baptized while saying, the almighty God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has given you the new birth of water and the spirit and has forgiven you all your sins, strengthen you with his grace, 
to life everlasting. You will note in the Lutheran service book, Rite of Confirmation, that is the blessing that is, that is used for the confirmation of youth and adults. Other customs associated with baptism, the white robe. In the ancient church, uh, that was used. They go into the water naked, and then they come up out of the water, and the deaconess would clothe the women with the white robe, and the deacons would clothe the men with the white robe. Obvious reasons why the women would clothe the women and the men would clothe the men. But it was symbolic of the righteousness of Christ. Another later, much later, symbol was a candle, the light um, that was associated with it. Any final questions? We've gone a little bit long here, but uh, any questions about the right? The commentary in Lutheran Catechesis might uh, help you remember or ask some questions. Cherie, did you have? Yeah, Jesus does in John's Gospel, and then uh, the Apostle John in his first epistle, My Little Children. So another thought process for us to continue to think yeah. about that. He wants to reduce adults into little children who are 100% dependent upon him. Correct. Correct. Now, what we will do next uh, week as we go into confession in the Office of the Keys is take up as a connection the last part, uh, number four here, what does such baptizing with water indicate and where is this written, uh, contrition and repentance. It is uh, the foundational for uh, confession, and then the office of the keys. So we'll use that as a review next week, what we did not uh, get to today as we segue into confession and the parable of the prodigal son. Polly? I just would like to know the passage where St. Paul um, talks about parents who are not... It's 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Okay. Uh, let me give you the exact uh, verse... Polly. Um, verse 14. Okay. It, it, the setup is this in verse 13. A woman who has a husband who does not believe if he is willing to live with her as a Christian, let her not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is sanctified by the wife. It doesn't mean that the wife sanctifies her unbelieving husband in the sense of saving him, but the fact that if she, he is allowing her to practice her faith, then he will be, come into contact with the word of God, which is, has a sanctifying effect. And the unbelieving wife is sanctified by the husband in the similar way. The word of God is that holy thing which sanctifies. 
Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but now they are holy. Okay? So that's, that's the reference. Okay? Good. We will uh, transition to the Lord's Supper by singing uh, hymn 596, All Christians Who Have Been Baptized. Five hundred ninety six. All Christians who have been baptized will know the God of heaven, and in whose name life is Christ, the name of Christ once given. Consider now what God has done, the gifts he gives to everyone that dies into Christ Beloved in the Lord, let us draw near with a true heart 
and confess our sins unto God our Father, beseeching him in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ to grant us forgiveness. Our help is in the name of the Lord. I said I will confess my transgressions unto the Lord. O Almighty God, merciful Father, I, a poor, miserable sinner, confess unto you all my sins and iniquities with which I have ever offended you and justly deserve your temporal and eternal punishments. But I am heartily sorry for them and sincerely repent of them. And I pray you of your boundless mercy and for the sake of the holy, innocent, bitter sufferings and death of your beloved Son, Jesus Christ, to be gracious and merciful to me, a poor sinful being. Upon this, your confession, I, by virtue of my office as a called and ordained servant of the word, announce the grace of God unto all of you. And in the stead and by the command of my Lord Jesus Christ, I forgive you all your sins. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let us pray. Almighty God, we give thanks for all your goodness and bless you for the love that sustains us from day to day. We praise you for the gift of your Son, our Savior, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. We thank you for the Holy Spirit, the Comforter, for your holy church, for holy baptism, holy absolution, and the holy supper of our Lord, the means of the Spirit, for the lives of all faithful and righteous people, and for the hope of the life to come. Grant us to treasure in our hearts all that you have done for us, and enable us to show our thankfulness in lives that are wholly given to your service. Lord, in your mercy. Save and defend your whole church purchased with the precious blood of Christ. Strengthen your faithful people through word and sacraments, making them perfect in love and in all good works, and establishing in them the faith once delivered to the saints. Lord, in your mercy. Sanctify our homes with your presence and bless them with joy. Keep our children in the promises of their baptism. Enable their parents to bring them up in lives of faith and devotion. Unite the members of all families in a spirit of affection and service, that they may show your praise in our land and in all the world. Lord, in your mercy. By your word and Holy Spirit, comfort all who are in sorrow or need, sickness or adversity especially Kurt Runau undergoing heart bypass surgery today, John Bruss shoulder replacement surgery tomorrow, Andrew Busolacci 
husband of Don Fell's granddaughter, undergoing lung surgery on Wednesday. Carol, in her recovery from hospitalization, Deacon Gatchel awaiting surgery, Paul Schmidt recovering from multiple health issues, Dwayne, Tom, Jim, Brian, Jill, Allison, and Roger struggling with cancer and in various stages of treatment, and Jeremy LaFour and his family in his ongoing struggle with ALS. Be with those who suffer persecution for the faith. Have mercy on those to whom death draws near. Bring consolation to those in sorrow and grant to all a measure of your love, taking them into your tender care. Lord, in your mercy. All these things, and whatever else you know that we need, grant us, Father, for the sake of him who died and rose again, and now lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. The Lord be with you. And also with you. Lift up your hearts. We the Let us give thanks to the Lord our God. It is truly good, right, and salutary that we should at all times and in all places give thanks to you, Holy Lord, Almighty Father, everlasting God, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, who overcame the assaults of the devil and gave his life as a ransom for many, that with cleansed hearts we might be prepared joyfully to celebrate the Paschal Feast in sincerity and truth. Therefore, with angels and archangels and with all the company of heaven, we laud and magnify your glorious name, evermore praising you and saying, Holy, 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 Lord God of Sabaoth, heaven and earth are full of thy glory. Hosanna, Hosanna, Hosanna in the highest. Blessed is he that cometh in the name of the Lord. Hosanna, Hosanna, Hosanna in the highest. Blessed are you, O Lord, our God, King of all creation, for you have had mercy on us and given your only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. In your righteous judgment, you condemned the sin of Adam and Eve who ate the forbidden fruit, and you justly barred them and all their children from the tree of life. Yet in your great mercy, you promised salvation by a second Adam, your Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, and made his cross a life-giving tree for all who trust in him. We give you thanks for the redemption you have prepared for us through Jesus Christ. 
Grant us your Holy Spirit that we may faithfully eat and drink of the fruits of his cross and receive the blessings of forgiveness, life, and salvation that come to us in his body and blood. Hear us as we pray in his name and as he has taught us. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Our Lord Jesus Christ, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat. This is my body, which is given for you. This do in remembrance of me. In the same way also, he took the cup after supper. And when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you. This cup is the New Testament in my blood, which is shed for you for the forgiveness of sins. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. The peace of the Lord be with you always. Amen. Amen. O Christ, thou Lamb of God, that takest away the sin of the world, have mercy upon us. O Christ, thou Lamb of God, that takest away the sin of the world, have mercy upon us. O Christ, thou Lamb of God, that takest away the sin of the world, grant us thy peace. body of Christ given for you, the 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 body of Christ given for you. The body of Christ given for you. The body of Christ given for you. The blood of Christ shed 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 for you. 
blood of Christ shed for you. The 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 body and blood of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ strengthen and preserve you body and soul in the true faith unto life everlasting. Depart in peace. of Christ given for you. The body 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 of Christ given for you. shed for you. The blood of Christ 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 shed for you. blood of Christ shed for you. The blood of Christ shed for you. The blood of Christ shed for you. The body and blood of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ strengthen and preserve you body and soul in the true faith unto life everlasting. Depart in peace. Christ given for you. The body of Christ given for you. The body of Christ given for you. The blood of Christ shed for you. The blood of Christ shed for you. blood of Christ shed for you. The 
the body and blood of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, strengthen and preserve you, body and soul, in the true faith unto life everlasting. Depart in peace. Amen. O oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, and his mercy endures forever. Almighty and everlasting God, we thank and praise you for feeding us the life-giving body and blood of your beloved Son, Jesus Christ. Send us your Holy Spirit, that having with our mouths received the Holy Sacrament, we may by faith obtain and eternally enjoy your divine grace, the forgiveness of sins, unity with Christ, and life eternal. Through Jesus Christ, your Son, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. Let us bless the Lord. Be to God. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious unto you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Peace.